Uh, This morning we're back in our series on the book of Exodus, and so please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 14. If you're using the church Bibles, that's going to be on page 66. Israel is now out of Egypt, more or less, but they're not yet out of danger, as we will see in a moment. Pharaoh still has his armies. Pharaoh's heart is still fickle. We're going to pick up at Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. We're going to read through the middle of chapter 15, verse 21. The story of the last battle between God and Pharaoh is told twice over. First as a prose narrative, and then in chapter 15 as a hymn celebrating God's victory. That hymn in chapter 15 is generally regarded as one of the oldest passages in all of Scripture, uh, going right back to Israel singing on the seashore. Hear now the reading of God's word, Exodus 14, 1 through 15, 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haheroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Haheroth, in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would not have been better for us, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, And you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. 
Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all day. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east, east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, what, during the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard, they trembled, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. 
Trembling seized the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is God's word. In this story, I want to focus on three themes that are interwoven throughout. The first is that the Lord is a warrior king. The second is that the Lord will get glory over his enemies. And the third is fear not, stand firm, and see the Lord's salvation. First, the Lord is a warrior king. The Lord is a warrior king. This theme is implicit throughout our story, although perhaps it's not something we typically think of as a major point in biblical theology. But you see there, uh, it's stated explicitly at the beginning and the end of this song. So in 15.3, we read, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is a warrior. And then the last line of the song, 15.18, The Lord will reign forever and ever. Up to this point in Exodus, only the Pharaoh has been called a king. But now at last, Israel recognizes her true king, the Lord, the true king, and his kingdom will never end. And so Israel declares her faith in this song, the Lord is a warrior king. Uh, just as a brief aside, you know how we identify hymns by the first line? Seems like the same thing's happening here. And so the first line of the song is, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then we see at the end that Miriam dancing with timbrels and the women saying, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's the name of the song. And so we don't know exactly how this works, but it seems like maybe the uh, men and women are singing in parts back and forth, singing this song together. But Israel only comes to understand this truth that the Lord is a warrior king who saves his people on the far side of the sea. Once they've crossed over and seen Pharaoh defeated, then they recognize this, true, this truth. But at the beginning, uh, Israel is on the near side of the sea. In fact, trapped between the sea and the approaching Egyptians. And so the story is about Israel moving from one side of the sea to the other, but even more importantly, it's a story about Israel moving from fearing the Egyptian army to fearing the Lord. The story is told artfully, cutting back and forth between what's going on in Israel or Israel's camp and what's going on in Egypt. It starts with Israel encamped on the western or Egyptian side of the Red Sea. We don't know exactly where this is. The Hebrew name Yom Suf literally means Sea of Reeds. 
It could mean the northern end of the Red Sea as we know it today, or it could refer to one of the major lakes that were incorporated into the Suez Canal in the 19th century. Uh, and if you don't know about the Suez, Suez Canal, you can read on Wikipedia later about that. But what's important and clear is that Israel is encamped along the seashore. Okay, They're open to the west, closed to the east. Then in 145, we cut back to Egypt. Uh, at the end of chapter 13, you may recall from a few weeks ago, Pharaoh has ordered Israel to leave the land. And now, ironically, it's reported back to Pharaoh that Israel's done just that. They've obeyed him and left the land. But the servants say, what is this we've done? We've sent Israel from serving us. The plagues have already fallen on our land and destroyed us, and now we're going to lose our slave force as well? What were you thinking, Pharaoh? And so Pharaoh sort of comes to his foolish senses and prepares his troops, his own chariot, his army, 600 specially selected chariots, and a bunch of other chariots that have officers over them, and he sets out in quick pursuit. Okay, up to this point in Exodus, the battle has primarily been a battle of wills. Who's going to be in charge of Israel, the Pharaoh or the Lord? But now Pharaoh has drawn up his army and set out, and it looks like we're going to see an actual military battle between Egypt and Israel. In 1410, we cut back to Israel and see things from their point of view. The people lift up their eyes and behold, what do they see? Literally, Egypt marching after them. And understandably, they feared greatly. Okay, So the story begins with Israel fearing the approaching army. Out across the flat desert, miles away, Israel sees this dust cloud of the approaching chariots. And as they draw closer, they start to hear distant echoes of an approaching army. And at some point, through the mirage on the horizon, they start to make out Pharaoh's 600 war chariots. And so they fear greatly. And what do they do? Verse 10, positively, they cry out to the Lord. That's a good instinct they're developing. But then negatively, they complain to Moses. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt and of course, the irony is, what's Egypt known for? Pyramids, which are massive graves, tombs for the pharaohs. And those were built long before Israel is there. So, you know, even in Moses' day, Egypt is known for its elaborate tombs. They're saying, what, there weren't enough graves there to bury us that you let us out into the wilderness? And a, sort of the opposite of uh, Patrick Henry, they say, it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Okay? Uh, but by the end of the chapter, Israel is transformed. You see what they say in 1431? Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses. Okay, so 1410, they greatly fear the approaching army. At the end, they fear the Lord and believe in him. It's a conversion of fears. Their hearts transform by what they're looking at. They see initially the approaching army. Then they see God's great power, and it changes their fears. They quit fearing Egypt. They start fearing the Lord. And what's changed in between? They see the Lord, their warrior king, who fights on their behalf and saves his people. And so then they spell out this newfound faith in this song of chapter 15. 
Earlier in Exodus, the Lord keeps saying, and even in chapter 14, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to bring plagues on Egypt. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to do these things so that they will know that I am the Lord. And remember, it's the Lord with all capitals, meaning it's the Lord, his covenant name. They're going to know who I am. And now at last, Israel has learned to use God's name. In 15.2 uh, and 3 at the beginning of the song and throughout the song, it's the first time in the book of Exodus that any Israelite apart from Moses addresses God as Lord, capital L-O-R-D. They start using his covenant name to speak to him. And what do they say? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war the Lord is his name. Okay? Through these acts of deliverance, Israel, not only has, uh, has Egypt been defeated, so Israel can go free, but Israel has learned something fundamental about God, that he is the Lord. And what does that mean to call God Lord? It means that he is a God of strength and salvation, a warrior king who is worthy of praise, who is mighty to save who can deliver from even the most dire circumstances. Is this how we think about God? Do we think of him more as a sort of jovial Santa Claus who sort of laughs and gives out good gifts and that's basically it? Or do we think of God as a warrior king whose power is so great that we ought to fear him as well as trust in him? Do we think of him as a warrior king who will deliver his people? The story in Exodus is telling us that the Lord is a mighty and powerful God who is active, who saves his people. Although we have to remember this is after 400 years. It doesn't mean we should expect this every other day that God is coming up and getting us out of desperate jams. But God does act mightily to save his people. Israel learns that the Lord, not Pharaoh, is king. And so they conclude their song, the Lord reigns forever and ever. Briefly, this song has personal, corporate, and cosmic dimensions. Uh, personally, you see in 15.2, it's not just that the Lord is strong in the abstract. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. Each individual, individual Israelite, as they sing this song, individually, personally take hold of the Lord and say, He is my strength, my song. The Lord is my God. I will praise Him. But it's not just personal individual salvation. Do you see in 1513, it's not just that the Lord, uh, whoops, I'm missing my notes. Uh, you have led your, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The Lord rescues a whole people group. Israel becomes a nation. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. So it's not just individual Israelites who come into relationship with God, but it's a promise that God's people will be led by God's steadfast love to God's place where they will dwell with him. After 400 years in Egypt, it's a promise that they will come home and live in a community in fellowship with God. But then this song tells the story of the defeat of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea in cosmic terms as well. I won't elaborate on this too much, uh, but it, there's references to the deep, 
that we have in Genesis 1-2. The waters are divided like on the second day of creation and dry land emerges for Israel to cross through. Okay, there's a variety of these different uh, uh, allusions back to Genesis 1. And the point is, as God is not only saving individuals, but redeeming a people and bringing them into his place, he's restoring his initial creation purposes. For a moment in history, in a certain place and time, God has put things right the way they should be. And of course, we're going to read next week about Israel complaining again, so things get off track right away. But it's a sort of preview, a sign of God's commitment to put things right. So the first theme is the Lord is a warrior king, and yet he is a different kind of warrior. He doesn't use swords or chariots, but simply outwits his enemies using natural forces. And so that leads to our second theme. The Lord will get glory over his enemies. The Lord will get glory over his enemies. To see how the Lord fights against Egypt, we need to go back to the beginning of the story, 14, 1 through 4. And we see that God leads in a very surprising way. At the end of chapter 13, he said, I'm not going to lead the people through the land of the Philistines because if they have to battle, they're going to lose their, um, their courage and they're going to turn back towards Egypt. But then what does God tell Moses in 14.2? He says, tell the people to turn back to Egypt. It's exactly the opposite of what he didn't want them to do. Uh, through the plagues, Israel has more or less been on the sidelines, just watching what's happening but now they're right in the midst of the danger. God has led them right into the thick of it, between a rock and a hard place, or an army and an ocean. And Israel seems to be trapped. But God has a plan, even though Israel can't yet see it. Pause there for just a moment. We know the end of the story, and so it's easy to skip over this. But in our own lives, uh, we may know the final end of the story, that we will be resurrected on the last day, but we don't know what, how things are going to turn out in the next month, the next year, and the difficult circumstances we're in. But put ourselves in Israel's shoes. Okay? God, they're following God's lead. This pillar of cloud is leading them in the wilderness. And where does he lead them? Into a spot where they're blocked in by the water and the Egyptian armies are bearing down on them. Okay? What in the world is God thinking? Leading them right into the middle of disaster. And it can seem like that in our lives. Maybe, maybe you're in a position like that right now. It's like, I, I've been trying to follow God's lead, and yet he seems to have led me into this place that I can't work my way out of. And of course, that's the point. God delivers by his might, not by our ability. God tells Moses he's going to one more time harden, or, or literally, and we've talked about this a few times, strengthen Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh has the courage to pursue Israel. Why? So that the Lord will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall at last know that I am the Lord. And how will the Lord get glory over his enemies? By setting a trap for them. Uh, when I was younger, and truth be told, still today, I love movies where the heroes are outnumbered and so set a, a, an elaborate series of traps to outwit and defeat their enemies, okay? Swiss Family Robinson, Home Alone, Shipwrecked, Predator, you know, whatever it is, I love that kind of plot. And that's exactly the kind of plot we have here. Israel is outmatched, okay? Chariots are like the, the, the Sherman tank of the ancient world. Israel has a few weapons, but they're not trained, and they're, they're stuck by the sea with all of these chariot tanks bearing down on them. 
and it seems like disaster, but it's the end game. God is luring Pharaoh into a final trap. Pharaoh will say of my people Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. But then Pharaoh takes the bait, and it is Pharaoh himself who will be shut in. Things look dire, but in 14, uh, 15 through 18, God finally reveals his daring plan to Moses. Lift up your staff and stretch your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will strengthen the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Okay? Pharaoh's army is still bearing down on Israel, and so the mysterious angel of God who has been leading Israel in or through this pillar of cloud moves to the backside to give them time to escape through the heart of the sea. And now we see both Israel's faith and Egypt's folly. Israel's faith, 21, uh, 14.21 says, Moses obediently stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Okay, the Prince of Egypt animated film, the water walls are hundreds of feet high, and you see whales going through. And in a sense, that captures the dynamic of chapter 15 because it's told in sort of creation language. Um, Chapter 14 doesn't say anything like that. I think probably what we're meant to imagine is the tide withdrawing and the winds added in reveals some kind of a sandbar that Israel's able to cross across on dry land. And yet we know from these videos of flooding in other cities that it doesn't take a lot of water even to wash a car off the road. So the water's tides come back in in just a moment. Wait, I'm giving away the, the ending here, but they come back in. Uh, I guess we already read it, so you know. And the chariots are all swept away. Uh, but put yourself in Israel's shoes for a minute, okay? It's dark, it's night, they're up against the sea, the chariots are coming down. Okay, Moses has stretched out his hand and prayed, the seas divide, there's this sort of sandbar they can cross on of some sort. And what do they do? In faith, in a daring act of hope, they walk out into the darkness, into the midst of the water, into the sea, trusting God's plan. And Israel emerges on the other side, a new nation, reborn as it were. In 1430 to 31, it's the first time in the book of Exodus that Israel is simply called Israel. Up until now, they keep being called the children of Israel. Okay, and so the narrator, there's kind of a little subtle tip here that they've matured as they express their faith in the Lord. It's like they've grown up. Trusting in the Lord, fearing him, and becoming a people are all tied together. And so Paul uses passing through the sea as an image for baptism. Israel is constituted as the Lord's people by passing through the waters in faith. We are joined to the Lord's people by passing through the waters of baptism by faith. And then in 1423, uh, we see Egypt's folly. The Egyptians pursued them and went in after them into the midst of the sea all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. But in the morning watch, the Lord looks down. He sees Israel is safely on the other side, and he throws the Egyptian army into a panic as their chariot wheels clog, their axles break, their horses start to go wild, their soldiers panic. And at last, sadly, ironically, in 1425, the Egyptians acknowledge that the Lord fights against them. 
The Lord fights for Israel against them. And so they try to flee, but they flee back into the sea as the waters return, and the Lord throws them into the midst of the sea. Okay, the Lord gets glory over his enemies, but his victory is not won with swords or chariots, but with timely tides and shifting winds. The creator of all things uses nature itself to defeat his enemies. So what we have then is a story of both salvation and judgment, of hope and of warning, but there's no neutral ground in the middle. Israel is finally free. In the ancient world, Egypt all the time was going up into Canaan and beyond to invade. And so even if they're out of the land of Egypt, even if they head to the promised land, they're not necessarily free from the threat of the Egyptian army. But now God has totally destroyed the Egyptian army. They're free. They have time to go to Sinai, to learn the law, to learn how to be God's people. So the story shows that the Lord's shows the Lord's salvation, his commitment to deliver his people, but at the same time, it's a warning of judgment. In the end, the Lord will get glory over those who are opposed to him. The Egyptians ride headlong into their own destruction, foolishly going to war against the Lord, and their fundamental unwillingness to submit to the Lord's rule leads to their demise. And so, friends, it's a warning to us all the Lord will get glory over his enemies. And so if you oppose the Lord, you'll end up in the midst of the sea like Egypt. If you trust in the Lord, you'll end up on the other side like Israel. If the Lord is a warrior king who will get glory over his enemies, what are his people meant to do? Well, in this episode, we see a third theme in 1413. Israel complains to Moses, accusing him of leading them to their death, and yet, before he ever hears the Lord's plan, he boldly tells them, fear not, stand firm, see the Lord's salvation. That's the third theme I want to reflect on for a moment. Fear not, stand firm, stand firm, see the Lord's salvation. Moses knows the Lord well enough at this point that he can speak this bold word of encouragement. He doesn't know what the Lord's going to do, but he knows that you can rely on the Lord, that you can wait and see his salvation. Fear not. Don't be afraid. It's easier said than done when 600 of Pharaoh's chariots are bearing down on you with a whole army marching behind, visible only miles away on the horizon. And yet what does Moses say? Fear not. The Lord is a mighty warrior king who is present with us and who is at work in the midst of this situation. That's a perspective we all need in our own lives, in our own situations, individually as a church. The Lord is present and at work. We may not see how he's working. We may not see how his plan's going to work out. And yet we need to trust that the Lord, the great warrior king of the Exodus, is still present today. And then we can be confident. We can not fear, no matter how dire the situation. Stand firm. Israel's already saying it would be better to be back in Egypt serving Pharaoh than to die in the wilderness. But Moses says, stand firm. Don't go back. The Lord has led you to this place as part of his larger plan. How often do we fall into Israel's mindset in life? Things get difficult, things are hard, and we think, wouldn't it be easier if I just went back? 
if I just compromised a bit here, if I just did something a bit more pragmatic there, if I just pursued some other strategy, wouldn't it be easier? But Moses tells us, stand firm. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. In a sense, that's a bit where the church as a whole is, and, and little churches like this throughout our country is. Uh, things seem to be in turmoil all around. We see all sorts of topsy-turvy things. We see opposition in a variety of forms. We have our own solutions we dream up, but what are we called to do? Stand firm. Join together Sunday after Sunday. Sing the Lord's praises. Read his word. See the Lord's salvation. Stand firm. And then what does Moses say? Do not fear. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation. It's actually the first time in the whole book of Exodus this word salvation is used. And it's a theologically loaded term. It's kind of a catch-all for what is happening here in Exodus. It's a summary. What has God been doing? Well, it means deliverance from slavery and from certain death that's announced ahead of time by faith. And it's received as a gift through faithful obedience. Okay? Salvation is deliverance from slavery, certain death, announced by faith, received as a gift through faithful obedience. And so we see how the Exodus then becomes a model for God's later acts of salvation. In Exodus 14, God shields Israel from their enemies through the angel of God, which in turn is in a pillar of cloud. Uh, God is present with Israel, but it's like two times removed. God's present through an angel, through a cloud and protects his people. But in Jesus, whose name means the Lord saves, it's the same word for salvation that's used here in Exodus, Yeshua, the God of Israel, the warrior God, uh, the warrior king of Exodus is again present with his people to deliver them from slavery and certain death, announced by faith, received as a gift through faithful obedience. Jesus' uh, incarnation, death, and resurrection enacts our salvation in a variety of ways, okay? It pays for the consequence of our sin. It makes a way for there to be restored relationship when we rebel against God. It does all those things. But another thing that happens through Jesus' work is that the Lord once again shows himself to be a mighty warrior who gets uh, uh, glory over his enemies and establishes his eternal kingdom forever. And so in the early church, Jesus' incarnation was seen to be a sort of trap. The God of the Exodus, the mighty warrior God, takes on frail human flesh and is born not in a throne but in a manger on the outskirts of civilization. And what does the devil and all the hosts of hell think? God has become incarnate. Now he can be killed. And indeed he can be killed. But the early church uses this analogy of uh, 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 the incarnation is almost like putting bait on a hook. That Satan swallows the bait, thinks that he can kill God. And indeed he can. But the, exodus, uh, the incarnation and the cross is the great trap. Jesus died, but death itself could not hold him. And so the warrior king rises again, defeating the devil and all of the forces of hell and death and bringing freedom for his people and teaching us what it means that the Lord saves and establishing his reign forever and ever. So what do we do? What do we do? The same as Israel. Fear not. The Lord is present in Christ Jesus. He has enacted his great salvation. Stand firm. 
Christ says, here I establish my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. We've seen here both a promise of hope and a warning of judgment. And it's determined by whether you are in Christ or not. Okay? Is he your king and so you will be delivered from judgment? Or are you opposed to him and you will bear the force of that judgment? Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a mighty warrior who fights for your people. You don't do so through chariots and swords, but by outwitting your enemies. We thank you that through Christ's incarnation and on the cross, you have outwitted the devil and all the forces of hell, that you have set us free from spiritual slavery, that we now can enjoy the freedom that you have won for us. In light of your great work of salvation, may we fear not. May we stand firm. May we see your salvation enacted in our lives. Like Israel, who faithfully received the gift of your salvation by obediently walking out into the darkness, into the heart of the sea, following your lead, may we too faithfully follow your lead wherever it takes us, no matter how difficult it may seem. May we follow you faithfully. Be at work now in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Amen.